Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark, and good morning, everyone, and welcome to the 421st live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. I'm Dr. Erica Reamer, sitting in this morning for vacationing Chuck Buck. Today, we are joined by Tim Powell, who will anchor the Talk 10 Tuesday news desk. Lori Johnson will be answering a listener's question about obesity class 3 during today's coding report. And Gloria Ann Bryant joins the broadcast today to give an update on CMS's guidance for remote patient monitoring. The lead story is on the important subject of the effectiveness of outpatient CDI programs by Glenn Krauss. And during my talkback segment, I will be talking about race and COVID-19. We have much news to report, and we begin with Tim Powell, who's at the Talk 10 Tuesday news desk. Thanks, and today we wanted to talk about nursing home support payments too little and in the wrong place. The federal government has already distributed $4.9 billion in COVID-19 release fund payments directly to skilled nursing facilities, the first specific payments of stimulus money for the industry released since the start of the COVID-19 outbreak. Every skilled nursing facility or SNF in the country got $50,000 plus an additional $2,500 per bed. Since the vast majority of SNFs are 100 to 120 beds, this means each SNF got about $300,000. The money, part of the CARES Act stimulus package, was paid to SNFs with six or more certified beds. Medicare has also temporarily dropped the three-day rule, which requires Medicare patients to have had a qualifying three-day stay in an acute care hospital prior to admission to a SNF. The average skilled nursing facility in the United States, though, only has 14 days cash on hand based on filed Medicare cost reports from our data. The huge reductions in hospital census across the country don't hold, don't tell the whole story either. Skilled nursing homes get a large number of rehabilitation payments as part of their Medicare population, including things like knee and hip replacements. We think that the payments, the stabilizing payments should have been made based on uh, stabilizing the revenue for the, for the skilled nursing facilities at 2018 levels rather than these lump sum payments. Now, patients recovering from cardiac procedures, uh, not only do these procedures stop for most acute care hospitals during the, short, during the shutdown, even on reopening patients are less likely and very reluctant to have these procedures until the vaccine is found for the COVID-19. I think we're going to need a longer-term solution that prevents a huge number of skilled nursing homes from going bankrupt. We are looking at declining Medicare census numbers for skilled nursing facilities for years to come, and we are also looking at a building turf war between hospitals and skilled nursing facility homes over patients. If the three-day rule never returns, SNFs could begin getting rehabilitations directly from ambulatory surgical centers. Hospitals can't afford to take any more cuts either. And with that, back to you. Thank you. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 monitor national correspondent. It's Tuesday, June 30th. 129,544 Americans have died from COVID-19, and you're listening to the 421st live edition of Talk 10 Tuesdays. Stand by. Searching for an online learning center that's accessible to your team anytime, anywhere? 
Imagine a convenient, centralized source of information for those involved with coding, CDI, reimbursement, and compliance. Search no more. Introducing the MedLearn Media Resource Center. The single source allows your team to access news and information from Rack Monitor, ICD-10 Monitor, and MedLearn Publishing. At the MedLearn Resource Center, you'll find webcasts, podcasts, ebooks, coding charts, and premium news content accessible from any location, anytime, on any device for one affordable price. The MedLearn Media Resource Center, a centralized online learning hub, will keep your team current and compliant. For a no-obligation quote, call 800-252-1578, extension 2. Call today, 800-252-1578, extension 2. Here now with the Talk 10 Tuesday's coding report is Lori Johnson. And a very fine good morning to you, Lori. Good morning, Erica, and hello to our listeners. This past week, a listener sent a question about obesity class 3. The question was, how do you code it? Could you assume morbid obesity based on the definition? Before I answered her question, I wanted to do some research. First, I checked the classification for any reference to obesity class 3. And of course, I didn't find anything. Then I moved to the official coding guidelines, also with no results. Another official resource to check is Coding Clinic, and there was nothing in that resource as well. My last resort, which is not an official resource, is the Internet. Medline Plus had an article on obesity classes, and there's a similar information on the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The obesity classes are broken down by body mass index, or BMI. Overweight is BMI 25.0 to 29.9. Class 1 is BMI 30.0 to 34.9. Class 2 is BMI 35 to 39.9. And Class 3 is BMI greater than or equal to 40.0. The BMI is a screening tool for overweight and obesity. But let's get back to the question. I would assign the code for obesity... Um, if the provider has not documented morbid obesity with, and also assign the code for the patient's BMI. If the patient's BMI is over 40, then they would be classified as class 3. Remember that morbid obesity is a diagnosis that is impacted by a hierarchical condition categories, or HCCs, so it can affect reimbursement for some areas. When determining to code or not to code, you must use your critical thinking skills and consider all of the angles. With that, I will ask you to review my article on the subject at icd10monitor.com, and I wish everyone a happy and safe 4th of July. Thanks, Lori, and don't overeat because you wouldn't want to become obesity class 3 just from overeating from the 4th of July. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Today's CDI report is on the latest guidance from the CMS interim final rule allowing for remote patient monitoring. Here now is Glory Ann Bryant. Thank you, Erica, and good morning, everyone. We're hearing more and more about remote patient monitoring, or RPM especially since the COVID-19 pandemic hit. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, 
has provided some guidance within the Medicare Medicaid program's policy and regulatory revisions in response to the COVID-19 public health emergency. Within the interim final rule, the IFR, this allows for remote patient monitoring, RPM. This type of patient care technology is very distinct and very helpful for ongoing treatment and care during our COVID-19 pandemic as it allows clinicians to remotely monitor temperature, pulmonary function, blood pressure, and other appropriate physiological changes such as pulse ox and so on. Originally, there was a patient remote monitoring codes created to address chronic care. This type of technology was captured through current procedure terminology or CPT codes. So we have some codes that I want to mention to you and we need to look at what we're doing in our clinic, physicians' offices, even in our outpatient clinics affiliated with hospitals. Under CPT 99453, it provides for remote monitoring of physiological parameters such as weight, blood pressure, pulse ox, respiratory flow rate, its initial, and setup and patient education on the use of the equipment is part of this code. It's the initial setup and patient education for monitoring equipment. We don't report 99453, this code, for monitoring of less than 16 days. There is another code uh, that I want to also mention and describe, and that is CPT 99454. This is device devices that supply for daily recording or programmed alert transmission every 30 days. Initial collection, transmission, and report summary services are provided in this code to the clinical managing of the patient. Now, there are some additional codes, and I'm not going to go through all the descriptions, but I'll just give you a couple of these code numbers so you can, in the audience, go back and look at them in your CPT book. 99457, 99458, 99091 are, are also some additional codes. So you can tell there's a series that would be important for remote patient monitoring. Always keep in mind with these CPT codes or any code, when it has in its description a time element, 30 minutes, 15 minutes, or whatever, we need to remember that this is a red flag and to be sure that the provider documentation has that component listed in the note, the visit documentation. Now, for the first two codes I mentioned, 99453 and 99454, there is a reimbursement under CMS. For 99453, it's approximately $20 nationally. And for CPT 99454, which is that supply device over a 30-day period, it's around $64 nationally for reimbursement. RPM, Remote Patient Monitoring, it's going to be another area for us to audit, to educate, to monitor, 
And in the coming weeks and months, I would say, put this on your list. And I now pass it back to Dr. Reamer. Thanks, Glorianne. I do think that with COVID-19, remote pulse oximetry monitoring is going to be pretty important because my understanding is they're sending people home from the emergency department that normally would be admitted, but they're sending them home on oxygen and home O2 monitoring to keep them out of the hospital. That was Glorianne Bryant. Glorianne is a nationally recognized HIM coding authority, and you can read her reporting on ICD10Monitor.com. Up next is the lead story with Glenn Krauss, who has the ins and outs of outpatient CDI programs. You are listening to the 421st live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Over the past few months, the worldwide COVID-19 pandemic has created confusion about coding and documenting the deadly coronavirus. But here's good news. ICD-10 Monitor has teamed with Talk 10 Tuesday co-host Dr. Erica Reamer to offer COVID-19 guidance and education to help you and your team navigate the confusion. There are easy-to-read electronic coding flowcharts to provide coders with quick guidance to accurate and compliant code assignments plus two on-demand webcasts, how to capture and code COVID-19 correctly, and its follow-up, COVID-19 ICD-10-CM coding, a deeper dive into questions and areas of confusion, all by Dr. Erica Reamer. These resources are part of the COVID-19 coding portfolio produced by ICD-10 Monitor to help you code accurately and compliantly during the pandemic. Visit the ICD-10 Monitor web store to learn more. Here now is Glenn Krauss. Thank you, Erica, and good morning, everyone. Uh, outpatient CDI programs are growing more widespread throughout hospitals and health systems as a gradual transition to outpatient from inpatient programs takes hold in the industry. And I really welcome the much-needed expansion and growth in these outpatient CDI programs because from my experience in outpatient CDI, there's so much opportunity for improvement. On the other hand, I'm so overly concerned regarding the direction the profession is going, in most cases, in implementing the program, following the same footsteps as inpatient CDI programs. And we know all about inpatient CDI programs. We primarily, for the most part, focus on CC, MCC capture, and uh, the capture rate and the CMI increase and SOI OM measures and quality scores. While these are worthwhile measures to focus upon and achieve positive results, we're not really dedicating enough uh, time and resources and energy uh, dedicated to achieving real, meaningful, sustainable improvement in quality and completeness of a physician documentation. And I'm, uh, I want to relate to you some experiences I have right now uh, working with the health system and conducting not E&M reviews in physician offices, but really looking at, uh, well, I'm looking at physician office documentation, but not from an E&M standpoint, from a CDI perspective. And I'm not liking what I'm finding. We, they do have an outpatient CDI program, and they're missing a lot of opportunity for, uh, for improvement in documentation. And they're doing a great job of, of working with physicians to capture HCCs and the RAF scores. But let me give you a few examples of opportunities for improvement. And we really need to take a hard look at 
uh, what we're doing, because think about all the financial uh, ramifications of the COVID-19 that, uh, and Erica mentioned that the, the number of patients with COVID and hospitals are really suffering. We can be a savior for uh, hospitals and help them in terms of financial pos uh, position uh, by making sure we get paid for the services provided. So let me give you some examples of opportunities for improvement. I reviewed one case where the patient was status post LASIK procedure and one of the complications are known uh, adverse effects is dry eyes. So you can uh, put punctal, called punctal, punctal plug inclusion. And uh, I looked to see, wait a minute, is there documentation support this procedure done in the office for dry eye? So I did some research and found out what the payers are looking for is, uh, is a complaint indicative of dry eyes. Well, this was kind of, this case was a little bit off, uh, could use some improvement in that. Uh, also looking for uh, documentation of bl bl uh, blurry vision, lifestyle issues, failure of uh, prior treatments, results of tests, diag specific diagnosis that required, and what's the plan of care and has the patient been advised of any ad uh, adverse reactions to this procedure? Well, this record was devoid of that. There was a query for an HCC, uh, and but this this portion of documentation improvement was overlooked. So therefore, we have an issue of documentation. I see a lots of other issues. For instance, no chief complaint or chief complaint to patient follow up. Well, what is the follow up for? It's medical necessity must be established for every visit. I see issues of. Uh, Vital signs not reported in the record. Diagnoses that are not being managed, uh, that, that are being managed, not included in the assessment. I see a laundry list of diagnoses like, a, uh, like just throwing everything against the wall and see what sticks. Uh, and some of them are not relevant to the encounter. I see diagnosis of first listed diagnosis that doesn't explain why the patient's being seen. I, uh, here's a good one. I saw a patient where the doctor actually wrote DEXA scan may not be covered, but I'm going to order anyhow, okay? But that should have been a red flag for the uh, outpatient CDI person to look at that case because there was a reason for the doctor ordering the DEXA scan. This is a COPD patient who's just starting on steroids because of the extent of COPD uh, and the control, and uh, uh, the doctor was, think was, uh, was thinking, okay, I need a baseline, uh, but the way that the diagnoses were reported and the doctor's thoughts, we can't code that. So there's a lot of opportunity for improvement. And lastly, if you look, if you look at the situation of these new, as of July 1st, five outpatient procedures that uh, require prior authorization, this is new to Medicare for outpatient procedures, uh, uh, the reality is that these are, these are um, uh, cosmetic usually in nature, not always. We should be looking at these charts to see prior to authorization calling to ensure documentation is uh, sufficient. So there's a lot of opportunity, and I encourage anybody in outpatient CDI, take a look at what we're doing. We really need to design and reprocess our, our focus to help our hospitals. And uh, back to you, Erica. Thank you, Glenn. I think that having the provider explain their thought process is just as important outpatient as it is inpatient. 
That was Glenn Krauss, CEO and founder of Core CDI. You can read Glenn's exclusive report in today's ICD-10 Monitor News. Now is the time for my talk back segment. Thank you, Dr. Reamer. Sorry, I'm pretending I'm Chuck and myself. Okay, even with a relatively low mortality rate, the U.S. had a population of 325 million people that was entirely vulnerable to this novel coronavirus. The case fatality rate is skewed older. Consider this. One out of every six people over the age of 80 you personally know may ultimately succumb to COVID-19. We do not know the true percentage of the population that has or has had COVID-19. Until we are doing random screening of large swaths of the population, most people who self-select to be tested are sick. The increase in testing is unveiling more people with active disease. Decreasing testing will not make the disease go magically away, even if it were to lower the apparent mortality numbers. One of the facts not being contested is that racial and ethnic minority groups are being disproportionately affected. I was very conflicted after George Lloyd's murder. Black lives do matter. And the uprising that ensued is a revolution whose time is long overdue. But I didn't want it to come smack dab in the middle of a deadly global pandemic. As I watched the news cover the protests, it was glaring to me that the COVID case and death tolls that had been prominent on the right side of my TV screen for months had vanished. I watched the national protests and was anguished at the lack of physical distancing and mask covers, putting protesters at further peril from COVID-19. All I can think about is how many more lives are going to be lost from COVID-19 and how folks must think that risk is worth it to shine a light on pervasive injustice. The systemic racism pandemic has collided with the coronavirus pandemic. An age-adjusted analysis by Yale and University of Pittsburgh revealed that black people are 3.5 times more and Latinx people are nearly twice as likely to die of COVID-19 than white people. The statistics vary wildly by locale. In Wisconsin, black patients are 18 times as likely to die of COVID-19 than whites. The underlying causes of the disparity are complex and they are inextricably linked to the fundamental roots of the Black Lives Matter movement. Social determinants of health, economic and educational disadvantages, healthcare access and quality, and cultural factors all contribute. It is universal that comorbidities portend a worse prognosis. Racial and ethnic minorities have a disproportionate disease burden of diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, asthma, morbid obesity, HIV, liver, and kidney disease. Some of these disease processes are linked to suboptimal diet, which can be compounded by living in food deserts and relative costliness of healthy foods as compared to fast food. 
Living conditions may contribute by institutional racism in the form of residential housing segregation. It is harder to practice physical distancing in densely populated areas, and there may be multi-generational households living in cramped quarters. Physical distancing may be especially challenging for the homeless and those residing in shelters. People may need to use risky public transportation to get necessities like food and medical supplies and to get to their places of employment. People of color may be overrepresented as critical workers in essential industries. Nearly a quarter of employed black or Hispanic workers are employed in service industries. 53% of agricultural workers are Hispanic. And African Americans account for 30% of licensed practical nurses, probably even higher if one were to take into consideration personal aids. These workers may not have paid sick leave, causing them to choose between their livelihood and their lives. They go to work, allowing the rest of society to shelter at home and flatten the curve. Being under or uninsured is likely to be a barrier to seeking health care. According to the CDC, compared to whites, Hispanics are almost three times as likely to be uninsured and African Americans almost twice as likely to be uninsured. For months, one could only get tested for COVID-19 with a physician's order. If you have no employer-based insurance, you probably have no primary care physician and thus no way to access a PCR test. If you don't know you're infected, you may expose others. Perhaps the disparity in mortality is partly due to seeking out medical care when the disease is more advanced. Perhaps implicit bias by practitioners negatively impacts on health care provision. Access to remote telemedicine may be impaired by lack of access to the Internet. Contact tracing may be more challenging in communities of color where there is a legitimate distrust of authority and law enforcement. Immigration status may be a major concern and impediment. Why did it take a pandemic to unmask racial and ethnic health care inequity? No one should have to say, I can't breathe, because society has let them down. We've asked our panelists to remain to answer some questions we've been receiving, and the first question we got was, does CDI not stand for Clinical Documentation Integrity? I see that you are still using clinical documentation improvement. I think the reality is that those of us who are, have been practicing for a while still can fall into using clinical documentation improvement as the expansion of CDI as the acronym. But most people and most organizations, including the Association for Clinical Documentation Integrity Specialists, have transitioned to using CDI standing for Clinical Documentation Integrity. If we used clinical documentation improvement, it may have been a specific thing we were referring to, or it may have just been an oversight. So I apologize, Allison. We do use CDI for clinical documentation integrity. Let's see. Until executives see CDI as a strategy to improve quality of documentation to justify care provided, denials will continue. I think that if I opened it up to everyone, which we may not have time to do, I think we would all agree that what we really should be doing is focusing on the CDI engagement to be improving the quality documentation that will improve 
the care that we're providing to patients, and then it will reflect it so that the quality metrics and the reimbursement are commensurate with the care that we've provided. I do think that you are correct, Stephanie, in thinking that what has happened is that some of it has been co-opted by the financial folks, and they look at it as a methodology for just increasing revenue. But we really, in, I think all of us who are in CDI would really think that it's to improve the quality of care and the quality of the documentation. So I think that that's really all the time that we have left. So that's a wrap for our 421st edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. I would really like to thank our panelists today, Glenn Krause, Glorianne Bryant, Lori Johnson, Tim Powell. I'm even going to throw a thanks out there to Emily Anderson and Laura Baker, who are the people behind the podcast. And I'm going to thank Chuck Buck, who's on vacation. And we miss you dearly, and we're looking forward to you being back. Remember, you can listen to all the Talk 10 Tuesday podcasts anytime, anywhere, on any device, and it's free. We all hope here at Talk 10 Tuesday that you have a safe and happy Independence Day. Please remember to socially distance and wear a mask when appropriate. We will see you back here on Tuesday, July 14th. Stay safe and stay sane. I'm Erica Reamer reporting for ICD-10 Monitor and Talk 10 Tuesday. Thank you for being with us. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.